Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. We're going to be studying the book of Matthew. The two passages that Dan read for us are going to give us important background to that. But please turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. And um, hold on one second. Um, once you get to Matthew 22, though, I would like you to flip over to Matthew 24, verses 6 to 8. Before I begin to preach tonight, I wanted, this morning, I wanted to, uh, to just uh, mention and, and, and lead us in prayer uh, about the fact that um, you lived through an eventful week this week. Uh, Russia invaded the Ukraine, and because of that, there's going to be, um, there's, there's all kinds of implications associated with that. Uh, some of them are going to be financial. There's going to be financial markets that are going to be uh, uh, affected by this. Uh, things are going to be affected. Uh, you know, our lives are going to be affected by this. But more than importantly, people are dying. People are getting killed. Uh, many of you may know individual people. Uh, I know some individual people who have had to flee, uh, pastors who are there. And uh, the church is there. There are Christians there. And such, and um, and these are unsettling times there for people. And I wanted to just help you to understand and see them in their context. And so, simply, all we have to do is flip two verses ahead of where we're going to study today and listen to the words of Jesus. Verse six: And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you do not; that you are not troubled. See that you are not troubled. For all of these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. These are all the beginning of the sorrows. In other words, Jesus is giving us, he's really, when you listen to these words, he's saying, stay calm in the midst of the world upheaval. There's going to be world upheavals. There will always be world upheavals. When Hitler invaded Ukraine years ago, and then when Stalin refused to give back Ukraine, uh, this century alone, Russia attacked Chechnya and sanctions were made against it. Russia attacked Georgia and sanctions were made against it. Uh, and Jesus is saying that we're going to see these things. And one of the things that he tells us here is do not be troubled. In another place, he says these are just the beginnings of the birth pangs. And so I want you to, first of all, be insulated against unbiblical people who are going to start standing up and inflaming people with all kinds of end time stuff as if this is the sign of the end times. Please just read Matthew 24 and listen to Jesus and not these kooks, okay? Um, they're already out there on the internet. We, Jesus is telling us to trust God, to trust God. God is in control. God is in charge. God is doing things, working things out after the counsel of his own will. Trust God. Stand firm in him. Your heavenly father is going to take care of you. Your heavenly father is going to provide for you. You are safe in his hands. And even if we have to undergo hardship and difficulties in our own lives and such, we need to trust God. Just like the Ukrainian believers need to trust God now and put themselves in God's hands and such. And so please don't allow yourself to be troubled. Jesus says, do not be troubled. We are to look to any event that takes place in this world. We're to look at this firmly and calmly by saying this. 
I have eternal life. And I have a father who's in charge of everything. And he has solemnly promised me that all things will work together for good in my life. And so I'm going to wake up today, and I'm going to be faithful to him, and I'm going to serve him, and, I, and, and one day I'm going to go and be with him. Let's live boldly. Let's live full of confidence and full of faith. And let's trust God. He's going to take care of us, okay? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we come to study your word, we pause before that time and we pray, Father. We pray that you would please bring peace on earth. We pray, Father, that you would please bring a cessation to this war. We pray, Father, that you would help these dear people who are uh, stuck in the middle of this, especially the innocent civilians who are stuck in the middle. Father, we pray for the soldiers on both sides, some of whom will die today and go off into eternity. Father, we ask and pray that you would please be with the political leaders around this world and you would give them wisdom and you would give them courage and you would give them grace and you would lead and guide. Father, we pray that you would help and you would move and you would work. Bless your people, bless your church in the Ukraine. Bless and be with our dear brothers and sisters there. Watch over them and help them and be with them and protect them and, and guide them, we pray. Father, help us now as we actually are also going to be looking at a passage that deals with governments and Caesars and kings and presidents and give us grace. And as we even think about the age that we live in now, give us wisdom. Father, these are such complex times and we just want to know from you how you would have us to live, how you would have us to, to walk through these things, how you would have us to be good witnesses for your glory. How would you, you would have us, Father, to honor you by the, our responses. And so help us, we pray, to come with teachable hearts this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> We're going to be looking at Matthew 22, verses 15 to 22. But before we get to that passage, I'm going to just simply read the verse, and then we're going to look at it. I'd like to uh, introduce things first for us. We live in an age of what's called political polarization. Political polarization. People are polarized. Uh, people who are on the right and people who are on the left, they're polarized. And the, and, the, and the centers of the right and the left are moving further and further away. And they're at war with one another. And that war that the right and left have with one another is, almost, is a take no prisoners war. You can't give an inch to your, to your political opponents because if you do, then they will take a mile. And so there's this, this sense that there's a war and, and there's two sides. And whenever there's a war and there's two sides sort of shooting at each other, the middle ground becomes a very dangerous place to be because everybody's going to start shooting at you. It's like walking down through the middle of a place when there's, when there's armies that are embedded uh, shooting at each other. And that's the way that we live in right now. We live in a, a time where uh, the smallest little point that somebody might want to make, you will immediately be canceled, you'll immediately be ta attacked, you'll immediately be hated by people. And it may even be people on your own side. We're, we're at the point right now, there's so much animosity that if you are on the right side or you are on the left side and you begin to question one small aspect of, of the position that you're in, then you're going to be attacked as a turncoat. And that's the kind of pressure that we live under right now. In fact, there, we, have, we have so much pressure right now that I was afraid to give an example. <laughs> Think I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> Somebody's going to get mad at me, but I'm going to try it anyway. <laughs> Let's take the issue of environmental. 
the environmentalist. Now, this is an issue that actually is very important for me. It has been my whole life. Um, I, was, I was in seventh grade, and I wrote a letter to President Nixon. And now I disagree with my political views in seventh grade, but nevertheless, I wrote a letter having to do with the Alaskan pipeline. And guess what? I got a letter back, not from President Nixon. I did. I got somebody from the Department of Interior, but they, they wrote me back because I was protesting because I didn't want any oil spills in Alaska. And so the environment has been important to me. I'm an outdoorsman. I, I, I hate pollution and I love trout, okay? But let's take the environmental issue right now. Let's say that you're, they're, 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 it's polarized in, in some ways. There, there are people on the right who, who believe that, that energy independence is very important and, and that, and that uh, economic prosperity is very important. And so they, they want to use all of the resources that are available to them. And I, and, and I think that's important I and mean, it's good stuff. <coughs> but if you're in, in those circles and you begin to question, say for instance, fracking, or you begin to question where the dispersal of this water that is coming up is going to do and the effects that it might have upon the environment, you immediately would be branded as some kind of tree-hugging liberal socialist. Now, people on the left, they're concerned about climate change and they're concerned about the effects of climate change and, the, and they have conferences about this and things like that. But if you were amongst those people and you said, you know, sometimes I wonder why there are eminent scientists who are questioning these climate change models and that maybe the world isn't gonna fall apart in 10 years, I'm wondering if maybe they should have a voice. You would immediately be attacked as a science-denying villain and the blood of the millions of people who are gonna die because of climate change are gonna be upon your head. That's where we're at. We can't have any decent conversation. Well, guess what? In Jesus' day, it was exactly the same way. And in some ways, I think an argument can be made that in Jesus' day, it was worse. And I'll tell you why. I think we can make an argument that it's worse. It, it might be worse. And that's because Jesus was in a situation where the Roman, the pagan Roman government, the Gentiles had overtaking them, were in charge, and were controlling what the Jews understood to be the Holy Land. The Romans were in charge of Jerusalem. The Romans didn't go into the temple because they knew that would be too politically damaging for them. Uh, they will eventually destroy the temple, but they didn't do that at least. But all around, their entire lives were run by the Romans. And the Jewish response to this, the Jewish response to this was a spectrum. The spectrum could be keep your head down, everybody keep your head down, get along with the Romans as you can because I'm going to keep my family safe, I'm going to keep my job, I want to feed my kids. To the other side of the spectrum, you actually had pay, you had assassins, zealots they were called, who, who would regularly kill Roman soldiers, regularly assassinate them. Barabbas would have been one of these men who started a, a, an insurrection in which people were killed. And that's why he was something of a hero figure amongst Jewish people because he killed Romans and Romans were dogs anyway. Jesus is, is, is functioning in this environment. And what we're going to see in our text today, Jesus is going to, a trap is going to be set for Jesus. So we're going to look at these verses under two headings. The first one is the trap is set. The trap is set. That's verses 15 through 18. And then the second is the trappers are caught in amazement. And that's verses 19 and 22. The trap is set, verses 15 to 18. The trappers are caught in amazement, 
verses 19 through 22. This is a very short passage, but I want to tell you that I believe that this is one of the, the, the most in-depth passages of Scripture. I'm going to try to take some of these pieces apart here, but we won't be able certainly to cover any of it. But let's begin with the trap is set. Look at verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and they plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And that word literally means to, to make a snare, to make a trap, and to trap him. They had already tried the direct attack. They had already tried to directly question his authority. They already tried to come right, and that backfired on them. That backfired completely. So now they're going to try to take the subtle approach. They're going to try to trap him with his own words. That's what they're going to try to do. Verse 16. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians. Okay? Now let's just stop there because I'm going to just go through piece by piece. So what they're going to do is they're going to they didn't go directly. The Pharisees and even the Herodians didn't go directly. They, they sent like the junior Pharisees. They sent like the, the, the junior Herodians. They, they sent maybe younger men or such, their disciples, because they want to trap Jesus. So the big Pharisees didn't come walking in. The big names, the, the Pharisees that, you know, you would have baseball cards for or whatever. Some, you know, somebody would know these guys. Uh, and the big Herodians didn't come walking in. They sent these, these youngsters in, these young guys in, and, and they were coming in undercover as if they were genuinely asking Jesus a question. And notice what they say, verse 16, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Now, this is actually a compliment, and in fact, it's true. And it's, a, it's their way of saying this. You're your own man. You're God's man. You're not intimidated by people. You're going to tell us the truth because you care what God thinks and not what other people think. That's what they mean. When they say you do not care about anyone, that doesn't mean he doesn't love people or anything like that. That's not what they mean. They mean you are not motivated by the opinions of other people. You're not the kind of leader like we have today that, that licks his finger and, and sees what's the political wind and then says, I'm for that. You're not that kind of man. You're the man who's going to stand up and tell us what you believe is true regardless. Now, I don't even think they believe that. I think that was flattery. But the truth of the matter is it is true. And this is what godly Christian people are to be like as well. That's why the passage that Dan read to you earlier in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says this. He says, I'm a steward of God. I'm a steward. He said, we apostles, we're stewards. I've been given a stewardship. I've been given a message from God, and, and it's my job to give this out. And I don't care what you or any other human court thinks about me. I'm going to wait till judgment day. I'm not going to be motivated by that. Paul earlier in the book of Galatians says this. He says that if I'm still trying to please men, I can't be faithful to God. I'm not trying to please men. I'm trying to please God. And that's what Jesus' role of, was, model was for us here. He's, he was the role model. And, and in some ways, what's being said here in verse 16 is actually the common view that people had of Jesus. And these spies are just kind of parroting that in order to flatter him and try to get him uh, and try to get his opinion. Now, notice what happens. Notice what you have going on here in verses 15 and verses 16. In verse 15, we have the Pharisees being named. And in verse 16, we have the Herodians being named. Now, who are these people? Well, actually, if there's a phrase that says, war makes strange bedfellows, or politics makes strange bedfellows. And this is an example of strange bedfellows. 
These are two opposing groups who have an equal common enemy, which is Jesus, and they're linking together uh, to get to Jesus, okay? This is bipartisanship, uh, first century way of doing it. These are two enemy camps coming together. Who are they? No, one is the Pharisees. We can put them on the right. The Pharisees are on the right. They are the guys who are the keepers of orthodoxy as they see it. And while they're not zealots, the zealots are the ultra-right. I'm trying to use language we use today. The, the zealots are the ultra-right. Although they're not zealots, they're going to try to push the buttons to get the zealots on their side as well. Because this is, they're going to ask a question about taxes, okay? And so you can see verse 17, tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? This is the big plan that they have. You see, the zealots, the ultra-right people that were there, they believed this. Listen to this quote. That taxes to the Romans were God-dishonoring badge of slavery to the pagans. The zealots did not believe in paying taxes to the Romans. By paying taxes to the Romans, you're, you're, you're pledging that you are a slave to them. By paying taxes to the Romans, you're feeding the enemy. By paying taxes to the Romans, you're buying weapons for the enemy. That's what it would be like to pay, pay, paying taxes to the Romans. And they were absolutely against this. Now, you could see this happening in our country. You could see, clearly see this guy. What if the Russian, what if the, the Chinese took us over, okay? And, and they said, uh, no, all your dollars are worthless now. Forget George Washington. Forget Ben Franklin. Forget those guys. That's your ancient history. That's your old history. You are now, you are now part of the Chinese, the con Chinese Communist Empire. And then all of our dollar bills had Chairman uh, Xi on it. You had a picture, the guy that you saw at the Olympics uh, smiling and all that. Chairman Xi on it. I could see people burning those things. I could see people say, I will never, I could, you know, that's, and that's the kind of spirit that they had there. These people hated the Romans. And so they said, I, I'm, I'm not paying taxes to the Romans. That's where the zealots were. And the Pharisees are trying to, 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 to tap into that. Not only that, these coins were considered blasphemous because they had images on them. Do we have a slide for this? There we go. This is the actual coin that Jesus is going to be handed. This is a denarius. And this is a denarius from the century that Jesus would have been in. That is a picture of, a, of the present Caesar when this conversation is going on. Tiberius Caesar. That is his name. Now, I want you to understand something. Now, number one, you see his image. And that's also him on the throne on the flip side of the coin. This is the coin that's going to be handed to Jesus. On that side where his face is, on that side, the words say this, Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. I am the son of God, basically is what he's saying. Augustus was God, I'm the son of God. And then the flip side where he is standing there, uh, sitting there on a throne, it, the words are this, Pontiff Maxim, Pontiff Maxim. And those words mean highest priest, greatest religious leader on earth. That's what these coins are saying. And what the Jews saw is when they saw that coin, they said this is an image and this is a violation of the second commandment that says that there should not be any images, don't worship with images. And that's fired up the zealots and that was their view. And so then the idea here is this. If you endorse paying taxes to Caesar, if Jesus says yes to this, 
then he's endorsing idolatry. He's endorsing breaking the second commandment. He's encouraging submission to Rome. He is financing the oppressor, uh, the oppressor and the common man will turn on Jesus and hate him. That's the plan. But then you have another side of the story here. And that's the Herodians. See the Herodians there in verse 16? Who are the Herodian? Herodians? Herodians are Jewish people who have aligned themselves with King Herod. King Herod was a non-Jewish king of the time, king of that area, appointed by the Romans. And these Jews have aligned themselves with King Herod. We'll call them the left. And by aligning themselves with King Herod, they have amassed political power and wealth by aligning with King Herod. They've linked themselves with Rome's political power, and they would be considered turncoats by, by a lot of Jewish people. The Pharisees would hate them as turncoats, and they're, they're mortal enemies, as it were, but they've linked together to get Jesus. Why? Why are the Herodians involved? The Herodians are involved because they want to, uh, they want to stop this man, Jesus. Well, first of all, one of the reasons they do is that they just saw a couple days ago a royal entry into Jerusalem. This, this prophet Jesus came rocking in and people were saying, Hosanna, he who comes in the name of God, he who comes, the son of David, King David's royal son has come here. And they want to quelch that completely. And there's one very easy way to do that. Get him to speak treason. So if Jesus says, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, are you crazy? Don't even touch those coins, have nothing to do with it, then they will have the ammunition by which to have him executed. And that actually did come up when his trial uh, happened. In Luke chapter 23 and verse 2, it says this, Jesus arrested and says, they began to accuse him saying, we found this man perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, that's a lie, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And so you can see how this would immediately lead him to execution. And so this is the test. This is what they're putting before him. Look at verse 18. Jesus perceived their wickedness and said to them, why do you test me, you hypocrites? See, these young men came in and they acted like they were his friends. Oh, you're such good. Oh, we love you. We admire you because you don't, you're not swayed by public opinion. You tell us God's truth right now. And he said, you're all a bunch of hypocrites. And you're testing me. And that leads us to our second heading. The trappers are caught in amazement. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, show me the tax money. He wants somebody to hand him one of those coins. Now, let's stop here. I like this. Jesus has no money. Jesus doesn't have any money. He says, uh, has anybody got a denarius around here? I, apparently, I don't have any money. I think that's important. We're going to get to that. Jesus didn't have any money at that point. So they brought him a denarius. That was the coin. And he said to them, whose image, icon the word is, whose image and inscription, epigraph, whose image and inscription is this? And they were looking at the exact same coin you were looking at. And they said to him, Caesar's. That's Tiberius Caesar. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard these words, they marveled. I think that's interesting. 
these little junior Herodians and junior Pharisees were like, what? Wow. And they both walked away with a lot to think about here. And they left him and went their way. Now let's go back to Jesus' answer. Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And in that simple phrase, Jesus taught an entire theology and political philosophy. He even taught an entire theology of life. What does he mean when he says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's? I almost get the sense in my mind that he looks at this coin and says, whose image is that? Oh, that's Caesar. I almost get an image in my mind that he takes that coin on his thumb and he flips it back into the hand of the guy who owns it. Boom. We'll give Caesar his little pictures. Remember, remember, when, uh, remember when you went to school? I don't even know if they still do this. But you went to school and you got school pictures. And you got like this big picture of your cute little face there. And you were just so adorable there in third grade or whatever. And then you got a couple smaller ones. Yeah, that big one was for mom at home, you know. And then you got a couple little bit bigger ones. And that was for grandpa and grandma on both sides. And then you got all these massive little ones like that. And that was for your friends and that cute little girl that was on the third grade. You know, that cute little boy that was over there. And you passed these out and everything like that. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, let... Caesar pass out his little pictures. Give him back to his little picture. Let Caesar have his little thing here. He's not demeaning Caesar here, but he's reducing him. He's reducing him. He's lowering him. Not in a mean sense, I'm even saying this, but he's putting him in his proper place. Give to Caesar his things. What is also Jesus doing here as well? That's number one. Number two. Jesus is taking a casual, almost devalued view of money. Jesus is not demeaning money, but he's reducing it. He's lowering it. He's putting money in its proper place. He's saying, don't be overwhelmed by money. Money is not that important. He's warning against this. This is what That's why I think it's interesting when it says that Jesus said... Does anybody have a coin? He's not somebody who's walking around with change, ching, ching, ching in his pocket. He's like, does anybody have one of these things, these things called coins? Does anybody have one? What's a guy doing walking around Jerusalem with no coins? Well, maybe he's trusting God for his next meal. I don't know. But this brings you this idea that Jesus' view of money, he's actually living that out. He's living that out. You see, and I don't have time to give us an entire theology of money right now because it would be a fascinating, it is a fascinating study in Scripture. Jesus at one point calls it filthy lucre. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus is speaking to a man who, who asked him to divide the inheritance. And Jesus said, man, that's not my role. And then he says this in Luke 12, 15. He said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. Gathering bigger and putting things in bigger barns, he's going to go on to say next, and, and, and shoving it in there and being rich of the things of this world and then dying that night makes a man a fool, not a wise man. Jesus, the Bible will go on to talk about the love of money, that the love of money, it, it, it produces all kinds of evil. It destroys, it eats you up from the inside. And the Bible goes on to say, don't worry about money. Don't worry about these things. God is going to take care of you. He feeds the birds. He feeds the, he clothes the flowers. God is going to take care of you. 
Now, the Bible doesn't say, therefore, don't work, be lazy. No, the Bible tells us that we're to work and we're to pro provide for our families. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8, Paul writes this, But if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. We're to provide. And then there's Ephesians 4, 28. And I love this verse because it shows the whole stream of redemption. Paul's talking to a former thief who became a Christian. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor. Go get a job. Working with his hands what is good. And then look at this. That he might have something to give to him who has need. Look at that. That's an, a complete 180 degree turn. Go from being a thief to being somebody who actually shares and helps the needy. That's the doctrine of Christian's understanding of even money. And that's another part of it. The Bible teaches that Christians are to be generous and give. Keep purses, Jesus says, that don't wear out. How do you wear out a purse? Just keep shoving stuff in it, taking stuff in and out. Keep opening up, closing it up, and you're going to wear it all out. Jesus says, have purses that don't wear out. Get riches in heaven. And that's the view of the scriptures. Be radically generous like God is. And you see how Jesus is, by just this simple act, oh, okay, see this little coin? Now, that's a denarius. A denarius is, is worth one laborer's full day work. Jesus says, well, give Caesar's little coins. Give it to him. He's showing a casual attitude toward money. I don't know where these prosperity gospel right, uh, preachers think that they're followers of Jesus. I don't get it. They're deceived. But then notice thirdly. Jesus is talking about the role of government. That's the other passage that Dan read for us, Romans, Romans 13. Jesus is telling them to pay taxes. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Give Caesar his tax money back. Christians are called in Scripture to pay taxes, to pay customs. We're, we're called, why? Because the government, according to the scriptures, has been ordained by God and has been given to us for as a blessing. And when government is done well and righteously, then government is a great blessing. We pay taxes so that we can have roads. We pay taxes so that when we come to a river, we don't have to roll up our, our pants, take off our shoes and, 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 and walk across it so we can have bridges. We pay taxes so that we can have police protection. We pay taxes so we can have flood control, for goodness sakes, which we, would, we desperately used over the last few weeks. We pay taxes so they'll salt our roads. We pay taxes for the government to take care and provide. And the government's job is to do that and to be our minister. And Paul's writing this in the book of Romans where he's going to be executed by the Roman government. And he still says that this has been ordained by God. And so there is an important place for government. And Christians are to be people who pay their taxes and support government. And Jesus is teaching that even in this. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. He doesn't say stop paying taxes because they're pagans. Now, I know there's tons of questions associated with that. And you could, we can talk about a Bible study tonight if you'd like. Whoever's leading Bible study, I'll make them deal with that. But then there's a fourth thing that Jesus is teaching here that's very important. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. What's he teaching on that? What else comes up here? Caesar is not God. Okay? Now, Caesar's coin that he's holding there says that he is God. And that he is pontiff magnific, magnet, magnimus. He is, he is the number one. No. 
And see, this historically was where Christians were going to draw the line and they were going to get executed by the Romans. The early church is going to come under immense pressure in, 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 within the century and where they're going to say, you bow down and call Caesar Lord. And they said, no, we can't cross that line. And they were going to be executed. They were going to be executed in horrible ways. And here Jesus is saying, Caesar is not God. And he, this is, Christians are to be, in one sense, the best citizens ever. They're to pray for their leaders. They're to pay taxes to their leaders. They're to submit to their leaders, and they're to obey their leaders. That's clearly taught in many passages of Scripture. You should be able to say, and I often thought if I was president of the United States, I would go to China, and I would go to Russia, and I would go to these places where Christians are persecuted, and I'd say, you guys are being idiots. Christians could be the best citizens that you have. Give them freedom of religion and let them prosper and let them flourish and your country will be blessed. On the other side of that coin, though, Christians are the greatest threat to autocrats. Because autocrats, like the communist government in China right now, or, or Mr. Putin, autocrats believe that the number one allegiance that you should have in this world is to them. And Christians say, nope, draw the line. Nope, can't go there with you. Because Jesus said, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but give to God the things that are God's. So what is God's? What are the things that we're supposed to give to God? Well, that's easy. Everything. Everything is God's. Everything is God's. And everything is to be used for his glory. And everything is his. And everything is to be done in loving service to him. Let's just look ahead in chapter 22. Look at verse 37. We're, just, we're going to be getting to this very soon. Look at verse 37. And Jesus, they said, what's the first and greatest commandment? Verse 36, Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's the very first. Love God with everything. God is to be your number one allegiance. God is to be your number one love. You're to do all things to the glory of God. You're to live for God. Your, your, your body is God's. You have been bought with a price. Glorify God with your body, Paul writes. Your body is God's. Your mind is to be God's. Your words are to be God's. Your energy, your action is to be God's. Your home is to be God's. Your possessions are God's. Your money is God's. Your reputation is God's. All of your thoughts and all of your actions are to be for God. You're to be everything is to be. Isn't this masterful? Give to Caesar what's Caesar, but give to God what is God's. And even in giving to Caesar, you're serving God. Because God wants you to pay your taxes. It's summed up so well, isn't it, in Romans 12.1? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable worship. Here I am. Here I am. All that I am and all that makes me me is yours. That's what Jesus is calling us to. You know what's interesting? The undercover disciples of the Pharisees and Herodians, I believe they stood there and they got many of these implications and they went, Wah. and they heard it, these words and they marveled and they left him and went their way. The trappers have been trapped in amazement. And I kind of hope that about 50 days from this time these are spoken when Pentecost comes and the spirit is poured out that some of these 
disciples of the Pharisees and disciples of the Herodians became disciples of Jesus. I sure hope that happened. But what about us? We should be marveling at these things as well. How would we apply this to ourselves? Well, we need to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And we need to give to God what is God's. That's the application. And I think this is important for us to examine ourselves. I, I certainly have to. When I come to a passage like this, I, I had to examine myself. Am I giving to God what is God's? Am I giving God everything? So I started asking myself some questions. And kind of like what Jeff did today, I'm, I'm going to kind of do that too. How much do you think about God on each given day? Now, I know some of you have very intense jobs, and you need to be focused on that job, and it might be very hard to think about God. Just very intense, very focused jobs. That's legitimate. I get that. You're doing brain surgery on me. I want you thinking about my brain, okay? I, I want you, I, and if you're helping and assisting, I want you to pay attention to what's going on. But, but honestly, though, throughout the day and throughout the week, how much does God factor into your life? That's the kind of questions we should have. Am I giving to God the things that are God? How, how much of what we do is very directly motivated by God? I want him glorified. I want to serve God. How, how much of that is? How much are we conscious of God and wanting to honor God and glorify him by our thoughts, by our actions, by our, all of our relationships? I want, I want everything that I do to glorify God. How much of that does that, how much do we actually give God? How much do we, do we just give? Like, like basically saying, give Caesar his things and then give God what's his due. And his due is everything else. It's all that I am. How much do I actually give of myself and my stuff and all that I am to God and say, here, these are yours. Now, I don't want you to be overwhelmed. At this point, you're thinking, oh, I'm such an absolute miserable wretch. I am such a failure, some of you are thinking. I, I so screw this up. Uh, there's no use even trying. Please, don't go there. The Holy Spirit is not leading you there. What we should be doing is saying, where can I do better? Where, where can I do a little more? Where can I, this week, take a few more steps in the direction of giving God what is God? Maybe, maybe for some of us here, we should say, I need to spend more time alone with God. I do. I don't spend enough time. I rush through my devotions. I, say, I need to spend more time alone with God. Maybe for some of us, we need to say here, I, need, I watch too much TV. I'm on my phone too much. I'm on Facebook too much. I'm obsessed with the news. Maybe I need to not do that. And, and give myself more to God. Maybe some of us here need to say, I need to do more to help others. I'm too self-centered. My agenda is just my agenda all the time. And everybody else has to fit into that. Maybe we should ask ourselves this question. Who do I serve? Who do I serve? Jesus said the Son of Man came to earth not to be served, but to serve. Who do I serve? Whose life is enriched because of me? Even this week, whose life did I enrich this past week? Who do I serve to the point that I sacrifice? Jesus said, the Son of Man came to earth, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Who do I sacrifice for? 
Who do I put myself second for so that she or he can be helped? Who do I serve? What do I do to advance the kingdom? And I just want, by way of application, for you to leave here this morning and to pray about these things and to be real with God and to hear this message and say, Lord, how can I give you more that I can give you? Don't be discouraged. Don't be just just come to God. And say, God, help me, help me to help me to do to do more. But now I want to make a specific application, and I'm I'm emboldening myself to do this. We're going to stand before Jesus one day. I have been impressed recently by the the Holy Spirit in my own devotion of the fact that we're going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ himself one day and give an account. And I glory in this. Right now, I'm very mad at Mr. Putin, okay? I think he's an egotistical man who is poorly running his nation and is dreadfully accountable before God for what he has done, okay? But I take comfort in the fact that one day that arrogant man is going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ one day. The con contractor from Nazareth grew up in a little town, rough little town, mean little town, son of God, died on the cross, rose again from the dead, and is coming again in glory. And Mr. Putin is going to stand before him. And when Mr. Putin stands before him, you're not going to see any of the arrogance. You're not going to see any of the power. You're not going to see any of that. I don't know if you can pee your pants on Judgment Day, but he is going to. He truly is. I'm not making a joke. You're going to see a humbled, fearful, cringing man because he is going to be on the very precipice of eternity. And he is going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus is going to ask him very specific questions as to why he put all of those young men in danger, why those women lost husbands, why those children lost parents, why those parents lost children, why he did that. And he's going to give an account. The same way, dear friends, you and I are going to give an account. We are going to stand before God. All must appear before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account. Even, yes, Christians, we're going to give an account. And Jesus is going to ask us questions. And I, I, I try to anticipate that because that's one of the ways that Christians are supposed to do. We're supposed to anticipate and prepare for judgment day. Live our lives as if judgment day has come. When Jesus asks me the question, or you the question, why were you so preoccupied with money, say, for instance? Are some of us here preoccupied with money? Why are you so preoccupied with money? I promised you, you'd be taken care of, you'll be fed. You should work even with a light heart. Or, or, or why, are you so, why are you so preoccupied? You know, Jesus is going to, Jesus asked me or ask you, why are you so preoccupied with yourself? Why are you so preoccupied by fun and hobbies and TV shows? Why, why did I so preoccupy you? When I asked you to go serve people, and I asked you to spend time alone with your father, and I asked you to live, why were you so preoccupied? Or, why were you so preoccupied with politics? Why were you so preoccupied with the news? Now, I'm about to say some things that are going to be controversial, but, and I wrote this sermon 
I wrote this sermon, and I know it's going to be controversial, and, and some of you may not like what I'm going to say, but I don't care because, I do care because I'm sensitive and I'm, I'm a wimp and I'm a coward, but I don't care because I'm really much more afraid of God than I am of you. But then this thing came home really deep to me last night. Last night I talked, looked through this sermon, thought about this sermon, and I sat down, I was relaxing a little bit, and Jan looked on her phone and she said, do you know this man? And I said, no, I don't think so. I said, wait a minute, do you have a picture? And she said, yeah, do you know this man? I said, I absolutely know that man. I met him in that office. I prayed with him. I talked to him about his soul. I counseled him through his problem. She said he took his life. I just started crying. I just started crying. I said, oh, no. Oh, no, he was such a sweet young man. Oh no. And then the man who introduced him to me, I, I said, I need to call him. Oh, I need to call him. This young man, and I'm not going to give any names, please don't even inquire, just listen. This young man got caught up in politics. He was a sweet, gentle young man. Got caught up in politics, was in Washington on January 6th entered into the Capitol building, didn't do anything damaging, nothing, was arrested. I was counseling him through the trauma of that and was looking at prison time. And he was not an insurrectionist, friends. He was not. He was a gentle young man caught up in politics. And that came to me after I wrote the sermon. So please listen to what I'm about to say to you in the context of that. Jesus is saying that there's a difference between Caesar and God here. There's a difference between Roman government and the kingdom of God here. Jesus is saying that there's a difference between human government and the kingdom of God. They are different. They are different. The kingdom of God is something that goes underneath the surface. It's quiet. It's, it's good works. It's, it's, it's the gospel being presented. It's Christ being shared. It's salt and light and, and, and leaven. And, and people come to know and, and, and love Christ and, and they become saved. The kingdom of God is different than any of the kingdoms of the world. That's a difference. In fact, Jesus made that crystal clear when he was standing before Pilate and, ready and about to be executed. In John 18, 36, Jesus says this. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. So I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Dear friends, I want to warn you about something. I want you to keep your head about something. As this nation continues to unravel, as wicked things happen, as, 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 as we get preoccupied with this, I want to warn you against a rising Christian nationalism. It's not right. It's this idea that God and, the Ameri and America, it, the kingdom of God and America are the exact same thing. It's the exact same thing. And that is not true, dear friends. That is not true. I love this country. 
I sent a son into combat for this country. I care about this country. I've lived in other countries and know the, the, the blessings of this country. I want this country to prosper. I want this country to know righteousness. I want this country to be blessed. I want this country to be renewed. I, this country desperately needs to be repaired. But if Christians begin to think that making America once again a repaired and righteous and holy nation is equal to the advancement of the kingdom of God, we're going to make huge mistakes. If Christians think in order to only way you can be a Christian is to vote for a certain political party or a certain political person and put all of our weight behind that, we are making a huge mistake. The kingdom of God is greater than that. Support your political party. Love your political party if need be. Vote for them. Go out and campaign. Look and find righteous and godly people and support them. Give to their campaign if you want. Put their signs in your face. I don't care. Do all of that. Be active. I, I vote. I care. But dear friends, let us not confuse the United States of America with the kingdom of God. God may be judging this nation. God may allow another nation to take us over, and certainly we deserve it. This may be the kingdom of China one day, or the kingdom of Russia one day. But the kingdom of God will continue to go on. I guarantee you, I guarantee you that if there comes a time when it is illegal for us to meet together as a church, we're going to still meet together as a church. If it becomes illegal for us to have Bibles, we're going to have our Bibles. If it's illegal for us to propagate the faith to our, our neighbors and our friends and our children, we're going to keep doing it. Because we must obey God and not man. It, in one sense, dear friends, it doesn't matter who's the next president of the United States. In one sense, it matters deeply. But in another sense, it doesn't matter. Who's on the Supreme Court? How they rule? In one sense, that matters deeply. But in another sense, it doesn't matter. And this is what Jesus is trying to say. Give to Caesar what Caesar. There is a proper place to support government. There is a proper place to be engaged. But give to God what is God's. It doesn't matter who's president. It doesn't matter who's on the Supreme Court. It doesn't matter in one sense because that will not stop the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God will go on. The gospel's too powerful. The gospel transcends politics. The gospel transcends the United States of America. The kingdom of God is greater than the United States of America and greater than Russia and greater than that. We have brothers and sisters in Russia. We have brothers and sisters in China. We have brothers and sisters in the Ukraine. We have brothers and sisters. The kingdom of God is all over the world and it's growing and it's powerful. And our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus. To Jesus. And that's why I burn with indignation when I see posters like Jesus is my Lord and Trump is my president. And I'm not saying anything against Mr. President Trump. I am not at this point at all. But I burn with indignation when Jesus' name, Christian, Republican, and conservative, when Christianity and Christ is dragged down into some individual political party or individual slogan. By the way, I hate all the slogans on church boards, too, these cheeky little stupid sayings that, that take the glorious and majestic God and drag him down to a little marketing play. Dear ones, listen, love your country. Love this country. Want it to prosper. But seek first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first. 
Oh, that the gospel will go forth. The first thing that I thought when the evasion of, 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 of Ukraine happened was, oh God, please use this. Strengthen the Ukrainian church and all of the Ukrainian unbelievers. Help them to see as their world is crumbling around them that they need something eternal. Bring them to you. Bring them to you. How will this advance the kingdom of God? Because the kingdom of God is my number one political reality. The kingdom of God. Dear ones, I know you know me and I know you know I'm an idiot. But please take these things to heart. Think about them. You don't have to agree with everything I said here. We don't. We're not a church like that. We're a church that loves each other and we respect each other. We, and in our last election, we had somebody associated with our church next door, and they had two different political signs in, the, in, their, in, their, in their yard. They were fighting. They were Trump and Biden fighting people. And I loved every bit of it. Because to me, that meant that the kingdom of God in this place, trans, it, it transcends all of that. They were brothers and sisters in Christ. Dear ones, let's be the kingdom of God. Give to Caesar what Caesar's. Give to God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask and pray that you would help us in these times of so much pressure upon us, so much politics and so much news and so much animosity and so much hatred, so much bitterness and canceling and disrespect for people who disagree. Father, we live in this world. This is the world we live in where people hate. We can't even speak our opinion or else we'll be hated no matter what, no matter how moderate that opinion is. Father, my concern, our concern is that we be caught up in it and we be made like it. Oh, dear Lord, you've called us to not be conformed to the world, but to be transformed. Father, I pray that you will help us. Our Father, we ask you, our Father in heaven, we ask you, hallowed your name. Glorify your name in all of the earth. May your kingdom come, and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Bring your kingdom. Bring revival, as Frank prayed, to America. Bring your kingdom. Bring revival to Russia. Bring your kingdom. Bring revival to the Ukraine. Bring your kingdom. Bring revival to China. Revival, we pray. Work and move in power. Bring the kingdom of peace. Oh, Father, I long for the day that people throw their weapons down and say, I'm not going to shoot my brother in Christ. I'm going to pray with him. Oh, Father, come, we pray. Send your spirit. And help us, we ask, to know what it means to give to Caesar his stuff to give to you everything. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name.